the 2009 Jack Straw Writers Program. Writer Anna Barlint is interviewed by program curator Donna Miskolta. Because of your experience as an immigrant, you are drawn to stories of those living as outsiders to mainstream society. If you hadn't become a writer, how do you think you would have expressed and addressed this feeling of outsiderliness? Well, actually, the writing came after other ways of expressing it because for many years I was a political activist. And so, I, I mean, I was writing, but I was writing leaflets or, you know, I was writing an article for a leftist newspaper. Um, I was going on demonstrations. I was actually, some of the population that I now write about, I was living among, working among, organizing among. And so that was sort of the expression that it took before I ever seriously began writing. Much of your first published work was poetry. What inspired the move to fiction? The desire to tell stories. Um, you know, even when I was a little girl, I can remember stealing away from the breakfast table I was the only girl. I had all these brothers, and I would steal away to the upstairs bathroom to have a little time by myself where I would just sit in the bathroom and tell myself stories out loud in chapters. So it would be this continuation that went on. All my life has been driven by story. My relationship with my mother was wanting her to tell me stories. She was sort of the storyteller now. I've become the storyteller. So I realized with poetry, I love poetry and I love writing it. I love playing with language. But I also wanted to write stories that were really easily accessible to a wide audience and that I felt hemmed in a little bit by poetry. Now you'll hear Anna's live reading at Jack Straw Productions. I'm going to read from a novel that's, I think, nearing completion. I hope so. The novel's uh, titled The Invention of Maria Horvath. And what I'm going to read tonight is just a little snippet that's sort of been shaped and edited for a reading so that it stands on its own. And I've titled it, Finding Rosa. Before I even knew the place I lived was London, I called it the town with all the houses fallen down. Piles of brick, rubble, empty spots, houses with roofs missing, windows like burned eyes. I'd pass the lot with Mum on the way to the shops, holding onto the hem of her coat. Her coat hem was comforting, eye level. When it moved, I moved and stayed safe. Then there were the prefabs. They must have been there all along, but I hadn't noticed them. Suddenly, I did. Their curved, corrugated tin roofs were all over the place, giving off a soft sheen. Mum told me they'd sprung up like mushrooms after the war and were supposed to have been replaced by real houses by now, but the government was dragging its heels. What's a government? I wanted to know. And how does it drag its heels? <laughs> I tried dragging my own heels, but all that happened was I scuffed my shoes. Governments, it turned out, were boring. 
We were on our way to the library. Mum used to take me and my brothers there, with Alex, a baby in a pram, me and Roly holding the handles, Oscar running ahead, and Stevie not even born yet. The library was in a prefab, with long, dry grass all around and bits of broken bottle in between. One time, I saw a tiger with grey stripes stalking us through the grass, ready to pounce. <laughs> that wasn't a tiger, laughed Mum later. You're remembering the old tabby cat that Oscar always had to stop and stroke. And it wasn't the library. It was the clinic where I went for our rations of orange juice and cod liver oil. But when they tore it down, that's where they built the new library. I would pester Mum with questions. Because why had all the houses fallen down? What made them fall down? We were in the kitchen, with Mum showing me how to make a cake, mashing the sugar into the margarine. Well, when she was a little girl, Mum said, bigger than I was, but still a little girl, there was a war, and airplanes used to come at night and drop bombs on the houses. So people used to try and hide their houses by covering up the windows with thick, dark blankets and turning the lights off until the whole of London was completely dark. But the planes dropped the bombs anyway, and that's what made the houses fall down. Did your house fall down? No, but the ladies across the road did. Did she die? No, she was in a shelter. That's where people used to go to stay safe. People dug shelters under the ground, in their gardens. Do people die anyway? Yes, darling, people died, but it's all over now. The war ended before you were even born. Now there is peace, in this country anyway. And she cracked two eggs into a small bowl and let me turn the handle of the egg beater until the eggs were nice and frothy. That's right, lovely. She helped me stir the eggs into the mashed up margarine and sugar. I took a little lick. Mum smiled. During the war, she said, there were hardly any eggs or sugar to be had. Then how did you have cake? We didn't eat cake during the war, but now the war is over, so we can eat cake. The curtains in our sitting room were made out of thick, dark blankets. Had they always been that way? Mum said yes. She'd made them out of leftover blackout curtains. No one had any money after the war, she said. We couldn't afford anything else. Well, it was a relief when something else could be afforded. Something satiny with stripes. But even with the curtains changed, she and Dad continued to remind us, my brothers and me, to turn off the lights. A teacher's salary wasn't that much, we were told. Don't waste electricity. Turn off the lights. I remembered a time with no lights. How I'd sat in the kitchen sink while Mum washed me, and all around was darkness, the only light a candle. Mum was amazed when I told her that. Gracious, you were only two. That was during the blackouts in the middle of winter. We'd just moved here then. Oh, there were a lot of blackouts that winter. 
And then the air raid went off, I said, in the middle of the blackout. An air raid siren? Whatever gave you that idea, darling? I remember. No, no, it couldn't possibly have been. You're probably remembering a factory siren. But I knew it was an air raid siren. Sometimes, lying in bed at night, I'd hear a plane passing overhead and hold my breath and wait. I'd hear the bomb whine as it fell out of the sky and see flashes of color in the darkness of my room. Except the bomb never hit. The explosion never came. And anyway, there were other things. It wasn't just the bombs. I'd been born in London, but Mum was born in Hungary. And once upon a time, she'd lived in a beautiful city with yellow tram cars and a silver river that everybody thought was blue. And she'd had a big sister named Rosa, who she adored and followed everywhere, and who was very clever and very pretty and had lovely, shiny, long black hair, just like mine. Mum was trimming my hair when she told me this, me sitting on the bathroom stool with a towel around my shoulders, my long black hair brushed down my back. Behind me, in the mirror, Mum's own hair was short and freshly set. Every other Friday, she went to the hairdressers for a set, and sometimes for a perm. But she still didn't look like other people's mums. And why was her skin so brown? Ah, well, that was another story. In Hungary, Mum said, she'd been a gypsy. Did I know what a gypsy was? No, <laughs> no, darling, it didn't mean living in a caravan. Mum had lived in a flat. There were all sorts of gypsies in the world with their own way of life, but they were all part of the same people. And all those years ago, when she was still Rose's little sister, Mum's whole family had been gypsy. Except in Hungary, life for gypsies had been very hard, especially when the war came along, which was why Mum and her mum and dad had to leave Hungary in a hurry and come to England to be safe. And now Mum was married to Dad, and she wasn't a gypsy anymore. So what happened to Rosa? I asked. Rosa? She was already married, so she stayed behind. But where is she now? She died, darling. Did bombs kill her? No, darling, not bombs. Well, how did she die then? She died in the war, but not with bombs. But how did she die? No answer. How did she die, Mummy? No answer. <coughs> Mummy! I discovered things. On the back of Mum's dressing table was a photograph in a frame. I'd been helping Mum with the dusting when I found it. I picked it up. Who's this? I asked. Mum told me, that's my dad when he was young, and that's your Auntie Rosa. 
Grandpa didn't look like Grandpa. His hair was slicked back very neatly, his eyes bright and dark, his moustache tidy instead of big and bushy. He wasn't old or sad. And Auntie Rosa was a nearly grown-up girl with a scarf tied over her head and under her chin, with hardly any hair showing at all. She wasn't smiling, but she didn't look unhappy either. She was just looking. I wondered what she saw. In those days, Grandpa lived with us, and before the sitting room was the sitting room, it was his room. His eyes were watery and sad, and his whiskers often in need of a shave. All day, he sat in the winged armchair and stared out the front window. Sometimes, his hands and mouth trembled. Come on, Daddy, you have to eat, Mum would say, and bring him shuffling along the hallway to the dining room. But all he ever did when he got there was spill food down his front. Sometimes, every so often, I'd sneak into Mum and Dad's room and take another look at the photograph in the dressing table. I'd look and I'd look. And sometimes, it seemed that Grandpa with his bright eyes and Auntie Rosa with her serious eyes wanted to tell me something or warn me of something. Then my real grandpa started sitting in the dark. In the mornings, Mum would open up those blackout curtains and get him out of bed. Look, Daddy, she'd say, the sun's shining, or rain again today, Dad. But when she came back to do the hoovering, or give grandpa a shave, or bring him a cup of tea, there he'd be again, sitting in the dark. Oh no, Daddy, she'd say, don't pretend you don't have the strength to get out of that chair. There's no one but you closing these curtains. It's enough that all you've done since the end of the bloody war is look out of the window, but not this. No, Daddy, I'm not going to let you bury yourself. And she'd whisk the curtains open again as far as they would go, the light flooding into the room and making Grandpa blink. But things got worse, and his hands and mouth never stopped trembling. And some days he messed himself in his trousers and Mum had to clean it up. And other days he just got back into bed and pulled the covers over his head. Until one day Mum said Grandpa needed to go and live somewhere where he'd be properly taken care of because she couldn't anymore. She just couldn't. She'd call me and my brothers into the kitchen to tell us when suddenly she just stopped talking and covered her face with her hands. But he's still my dad, she said, and he's still your grandpa. That day, the day he left, Grandpa's suitcase sat packed and ready all morning in the downstairs hallway. By afternoon, he and the suitcase were gone but it was when he shuffled out to the special ambulance that came to take him to the nursing home that I saw how afraid he was. And I knew, no matter what Mum said, the war hadn't ended. The ambulance drove away and I crept upstairs. I needed to look at the photograph again. I held it for a long time. 
Then I did something. Mum had a scarf with roses on it, a little bit like the one Auntie Rosa wore in the picture. I knew she kept it in the top right-hand drawer of the dressing table. With my heart thumping, I rummaged around, found it, and put it on. And there Auntie Rosa was, in the mirror, or nearly, younger, but staring out from the same dark eyes as in the photograph, her shiny black hair hidden by the scarf. Except now it was me. I was the little sister. My heart continued to thump. I could feel the thumps under my hand. And I thought to myself, once upon a time, Mummy was the little sister. Once upon a time, Auntie Rosa's heart used to thump. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Programme. The 2009 curator of this programme is Donna Miskolta. Music performed by Christopher Roberts and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Programme. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, Tom Stiles, and CJ Lazenby. Narrator is Amy Brumhall. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.